We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. We're in a series called Two Friends and One Hero. We're looking at the, the lives and the ministries of Elijah and Elisha with a goal of getting to Christ and how those prophets actually point us to and reveal Christ to us. It probably won't surprise you to hear me say that in 20 years of premarriage counseling, helping couples get ready for marriage, uh, what I've noticed is that more often than not, more often than not, the couples getting married, the people getting married are, are vastly different in terms of personality, temperament, wiring, in some cases uh, even interest. Um, we see it's, it's, it's not uncommon for those who are opposites, you know, as the saying goes, to be attracted to one another. Introverts uh, often are uh, gravitate toward extroverts. Uh, the risk-averse, uh, they, they, they're attracted toward risk-takers. Those who are quiet and reserved will often uh, find themselves you know, uh, falling in love with those who are uh, louder and, and maybe more gregarious. Um, this is a very common thing that, uh, that opposites um, do, in fact, attract. And, and history is actually uh, riddled with examples of, of opposites who have been attracted to each other. You, know, you go all the way back 500 years, King Henry VIII of England and Anne of Cleves, and, uh, and, and you, you, maybe you're familiar with the story. It's a fascinating story. Uh, Anne was actually King Henry's fourth wife, um, and uh, he really wasn't inclined to get married again, but it was an arranged marriage for political reasons. And he said about his wife before they were, he wasn't really, again, didn't really want to get married, and then after he met her, he didn't see her at all, didn't lay eyes on her until right before they got married, and uh, he said famously when he saw her, he said, now that I've seen her, I like her even worse. And so their marriage was a bit troublesome. It didn't last long. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, she was the fourth of his six wives. She would actually outlive the other five and end up to be sort of a confidant to uh, King Henry in his uh, later years of life. Much closer to our day and age, you may remember uh, Julia Roberts and Lyle Lovett. Uh, she, the it girl of the 90s with the kilowatt smile and the big teeth and the perfect looks and, and so on. Uh, and, and he, Lyle Lovett, kind of the quirky musician with a crooked face and the weird hair and, and, and so on. And they fell in love. It didn't last very long, about two years uh, was it. But they even now say we're still the best of friends. Um, if you look at the sports world, you think about maybe... Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, right? I mean, Tom Brady, the, the outgoing with person with a magnetic personality and the good looks and the charm, and, and Bill Belichick, the uh, kind of the gruff uh, tactician who's known more for uh, wearing hooded sweatshirts and, and many with the sleeves cut off, kind of beginning a new trend called the mock sweatshirt. Um, but they, they, they didn't seem to really get along. How could they possibly relate to one another? And yet they won all those titles together. This is a family Sunday, so we have our kids with us, so I thought of a couple more. How about uh, SpongeBob and Squidward, if you watch any kids' programs? Uh, Sponge, SpongeBob, you know, he's kind of the, uh, the affable, uh, obnoxious, um, you know, sincere person, always sees the best in everyone, and then Squidward being the sarcastic, um, you know, mean-spirited at time, always with a, a rude remark. And then the other one, Phineas and Ferb, um, I actually don't know anything about these two, but I asked my daughter, uh, what are some couples that, uh, what are some people on TV, TV that kids are watching that, that are odd couples? And 
So I'll have to figure out why they're odd couples later. But, um, but they have these, throughout history, these examples of, of odd couples, either friendships or marriages. Well, if you go way before all of that, you have Elijah and Elisha. Elijah uh, was a poor, poor man who came from a relative uh, anonymity, a, an obscure town that hardly anyone had heard of, had a very gruff personality, was very rude at times, uh, very moody. Uh, he, was, he was always ready to quit, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. You know, he's always ready to throw in the towel, to give up on ministry. At one point, he even tells to the, the Lord, he says, take my life if you would. And uh, he has these huge mood swings, struggles with depression quite a bit. And then there's Elisha, um, and he was, uh, he was more sort of a never-take-no-for-an-answer sort of guy, much younger than Elijah. He was a rich, he was a very wealthy man, came from a prominent community, a, a family in good standing, um, much less sort of highs and lows. And yet the two of these men, they developed this incredible friendship, really more of a father-son sort of relationship, uh, and they would, they would minister together for well over a decade, uh, again, in this very deep and, and meaningful friendship. Well, what we're looking at in this series is we're looking at Elijah and Elisha. We've not really met Elisha yet. Kind of uh, sad that the two names sound so familiar, so I'll try not to be, I'll try to, to enunciate clearly so you're, you're not confused on those. But um, in this sort of incredible odd couple, they will reveal to us by, by their ministry and their lives much about God, his character, uh, his salvation. Um, and his work through his son. So I want to go back before we get into First King or Second Kings. Let me just look at First Kings nineteen, and you'll you'll see the words behind me. I want to look very quickly at the calling of Elisha. So First Kings nineteen verses fifteen and sixteen. This is the Lord talking to Elijah, and the Lord said to him, "Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria." And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahalah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. Now, scan down to verse 19. So he, this is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he said, the oxen, uh, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will go follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, I, for what have I done to you? And he returned uh, from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave them to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So, Elijah, as you may recall, has had this incredible experience with the Lord where God spoke to him in a whisper, and, and this was all accompanied by firestorm and a whirlwind and, and all of this stuff. And Elijah has more ministry ahead of him, but God actually calls Elijah to anoint a successor by the name of Elisha. And when Elijah finds Elisha, the, the latter is... Uh, plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. A yoke was a, a wooden beam that connected two uh, beasts of burden. So this means that he actually has 24 oxen, which would have made him uh, a wealthy man in that day and also indicated that he had a, a lot of land to cover. 
So while Elisha is plowing, Elijah comes up next to him, puts his cloak over his shoulder, which was a, a way of a sign to show that Elijah is handing off his ministry, his prophetic ministry to Elisha. And Elisha knew what that meant. He understood the significance of that. He was being called to succeed Elijah. So he ran after Elijah. He said, hey, let me go back and kiss my mom and dad, and then I'll follow you. And Elijah says something kind of surprising. In fact, you read it, it kind of, it kind of uh, hits us the wrong way. He says to Elijah, uh, Elisha, rather, why are you telling me this? What did I do to you? It's kind of grouchy, isn't it? It's kind of gruff, is consistent with his uh, personality. Um, there's not a lot of warmth in it. But what Elijah is saying ultimately is, I didn't choose you. God did. In fact, he, he may even be implying, you may not have been my first choice. But God actually has anointed you. He's called you to this mission. And Elisha responds, as he said he would. He goes back home. He says goodbye to his parents. And then he takes those oxen that he's been plowing, critical to the success of his vocation, critical to maybe even his, own, his family's sort of well-being. And he doesn't sell them. He slaughters them. And he puts on a feast for the whole community, not just his family, the whole community to partake in. Everyone is involved. One Old Testament scholar, Terence Freetheim, writes, Elisha's act is a sign that this decision is irrevocable. He, he no longer has a vocation to which he can return. So Elisha gives up everything to follow Elijah, even, in a sense, burning his business to the ground. He, he gives up everything he has. Why? Well, because Elisha understands something very important. It's our first point this morning. A dangerous, uncertain life lived in service to God is far greater than a prosperous and steady existence apart from Him. Now think about the cloak, think for a minute about the cloak that Elijah or yeah, Elijah placed over Elisha and what it looked like after all that he'd been through. This was Elijah's cloak. Remember, he, he uh, had fled from Jezebel, had run through the, the wilderness, had been stranded in the desert. Um, you know, this is a, a cloak that's, I'm sure, covered with blood, sweat, and tears, and dirt, and grime, and everything else you can imagine. Uh, my older daughter mentioned to me the other, the other day she went to work out at the gym that uh, we work out at, and, and she said she was on the treadmill next to another man, and, and she was running, and he was running, but he was running at full speed. So I don't know, when I, the, the max I ever get up to is eight or nine miles per hour, but this guy was going at full speed for 20 minutes. And my daughter said that the sweat was pouring off of him, literally, there, there's, a, there's a, a compartment right in front of the treadmill where you can put your phone or your device or whatever. And, and my daughter said that that whole compartment was literally filled to the brim with sweat. And she said, it made me gag thinking that I've been on that same machine and I know I've put my phone there. And I said, that, that's, that's enough. Just that story is enough to make me quit working out uh, the one time a month that I work out. And so I just thought about that. But, but imagine this. This is a cloak that Elijah has on, had had on him when he ran through the desert, 17 miles, sprinting, outrunning horses and chariots. It had all kinds of stuff. Now, why mention that? Because this cloak 
told a story. This cloak told a story of, of what a life committed to God would entail. And this would not have been lost on Elisha. I'm surprised his response wasn't, get this thing off of me. This is disgusting. But Elisha, he gets that call of God on his life as evidenced by this, this cloak being placed on him. And he invites the whole village to celebrate, knowing, knowing the hardship that this will entail. Elisha is rich. He had everything. He had status. He had wealth. He had a solid family. He had a good reputation. He had land. He had a steady vocation. And yet when he receives God's call on his life, he is giddy with excitement. Not because he thinks it's going to be an easy life. He knows better. But because he realizes that walking with God, being called by God, living in service to God on God's mission is far better than any alternative. A life without the call of God, and every person who's a believer, as a Christian, has received that call of God. A life without the call of God, a life devoid of relationship with God as Father and Lord, is a life without meaning and will lead to uh, despair. Whenever anyone says, never before in history... You know, that's typically a reason for us to really perk up and say, okay, maybe even approach this with some suspicion. But I will say this, I think we can say this for sure. Never before in history, in the history of the world, have we had more information available to us more readily. I mean, information at our fingertips. More options available to us, more opportunities available to us. Um, more ways for us to entertain ourselves than ever before. And yet, never before, would I argue, have we been more depressed, more aimless, more confused, and more desperate for purpose and meaning. A pastor and author, Gavin Ortland, writes, Our standard of living has risen but so have our suicide rates. We are smarter, but we're more uncertain. Surrounded by pleasure, but less fulfilled. Able to do almost anything, but uncertain whether to do anything. Life lived in service to God is far greater, far more fulfilling than life lived for ourselves. And when I say life lived in service to God, I'm not talking about vocational ministry necessarily. I'm not saying you need to leave your job as a blank whatever you are and, and, and become a pastor or a missionary, though God may call some of you to that. I'm talking about life with the ultimate and greatest priority, the glory and name and fame and mission of our God. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, again, this is true for every believer, not just prophets, he calls that person into a relationship that requires the abandonment of the old life. The old affections, the old allegiances, the old authorities, the old masters, the old passions. God calls a person to put off the old life and to embrace the new. But this will involve discomfort. It will involve uncertainty. It will involve suffering. And it may involve danger. Certainly, some people will not like you because of your devotion to Jesus. Some people will criticize you. Some people will say things about you that aren't fair. 
They, they will, they will uh, speak badly of you. They will misrepresent you. Um, living God, in God's service may mean that you encounter very unique dangers because we do have a unique exclusive message. It's inclusive in that all are invited to receive the gospel and become children of God. But it's exclusive in that there's only one way to get to God, and that's through the person and work of His Son. And of course, when you talk about anything that, that reeks of exclusivity, you are going to invite opposition and anger. Well, Elisha was not just ready for it. He was all about it. Look at the next time we see Elisha in the text. This is, keep in mind, this is more than 10 years later. Um, uh, Elijah has been, Elisha has been serving Elijah for more than a decade. And look at what happens in chapter 2. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 3. After the death of Ahab, Moab, oh, I'm sorry, that's chapter 1. One more chapter here. Uh, now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha, remember what I said about him, he doesn't take no for an answer. Uh, but Elisha said, to, uh, said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, yes, I know, keep quiet. So Elijah tells Elisha to stay put, but Elijah, uh, uh, Elisha refuses. And uh, this happens two more times, three times in total, with, with finally Elijah saying to Elisha, all right, forget it, just come with me. Now look at, scan down to verses 6, the last part of verse 6 through 12, uh, 6b. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to, one, to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over it on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw them no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. So Elijah and Elisha are making their way, you know, as they're making their way toward the Jordan River, the sons of the prophets, which is really just essentially Elisha's kind of discipleship group, his, his own disciples, all 50 of them, they remain at a distance. They know something incredible is about ready to happen. They don't know exactly what, but they know something remarkable is about to, remarkable is about to happen. And incredibly, miraculously, when Elijah and Elisha make it to the banks of the Jordan River, Elijah takes that same sweat-stained cloak, rolls it up into a makeshift staff, and touches the water, at which point the water parts into two sides, and the two of them walk across on dry ground. Now the Jordan, keep in mind, this is 150 miles long. I've been in the Jordan at, during high season. I've, 
had the privilege of baptizing some folks in the Jordan River a couple years ago. The Jordan River doesn't ever stop flowing naturally. It's always flowing. It never dries up. It's cold. Um, And here is this miracle where Elijah causes the river to part into two sides where they can walk through. Just like Moses when he led the people out of Egypt, just like Joshua when he led the people into the promised land, Elijah serves as a conduit of God's supernatural water-dividing power. And then they get to the other side. Elijah asks Elisha, can I have a double portion of your spirit? And Elijah says, man, you, that's a really hard thing you're asking. That's a very tough thing that you've asked. But he said, if you see me when I'm being taken from you, then you will know that you have received an affirmative answer. You've gotten what you asked for. If you don't see me, you won't get the double portion. This just means he's going to be doubly fruitful in ministry, uh, which we know was actually the case. Well, sure enough, as they're walking and talking, chariots of fire came down from heaven, rode between the two of them, and a whirlwind swept up Elijah and carried him off to heaven. And Elijah saw it. His friend, here's this odd couple, but they're, they're, they get along so famously, father and son-like relationship. He sees it and he tears his clothes, which was a, a, a sign of just brokenness and weeping and mourning and sadness. Now, what's interesting to me as I, as I got into this was that there's very little description about the actual chariots of fire and the whirlwind. It's just sort of, uh, it's very direct. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing about the the pyrotechnics, there's nothing about the ascension, there's nothing about, you know, very little about it, just matter of fact. Um, there's no commentary on it, really. There's no record of, of any sort of extreme reactions by the 50 uh, men standing by. It's one of the most amazing events in all of history, and there's just not a lot recorded about it. Why is that? Well, that's because the point is not the, the uh, sort of grandiose miracle The point is actually about the continuity between these two prophets. The fact that Elijah is taken up to heaven without dying, I mean, sure, it does indicate God's pleasure in him, but really what it's an indication of, it's meant to convey that Elijah's ministry doesn't end. It continues on through Elisha. Elijah lives on through the ministry of Elisha. Now, this would be clear, really, immediately. After Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elisha would take the cloak, and he would strike the water of Jordan, and again, the river is separated. In fact, Elisha would have a much more prominent ministry than Elijah, even though Elijah Elijah is the goat. Elijah is the greatest of all time in terms of prophets. Remember at the, when Jesus brings Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration, who's there with Jesus? Elijah and Moses, right? Elijah is this historic figure, and yet Elisha would minister for 30 more years than Elijah. Elisha would perform twice as many miracles as Elijah. But their ministries had very different emphases. Remember, I talked about how different these two men were. They're they're polar opposites. In fact, Elijah's miracles... Elijah's miracles were meant to point out the devastation and the judgment of God to an unrepentant and idolatrous Israel. So if you think about Elijah and how his ministry was characterized, it's by judgment. Elisha, on the other hand, his ministry was one of mercy, more of mercy. Remember with Elijah, we had uh, the fire coming down from heaven and 
the pronouncement of a drought and a famine and, and all of these things. We've already seen some 400 casualties already as a result of Elijah's ministry. But with Elisha, he's, he's cleansing water and healing those who are sick. And, and he's taking a pot of food that it was poisonous because an herb had been put in. And he makes that pure to eat. And he, he cures a Gentile of his leprosy. Elisha's ministry shows God's compassion and God's mercy. One theologian, A.W. Pink, writes this, The majority of those miracles performed by Elijah were associated with death and destruction, whereas those attributed to Elisha were works of healing and restoration. If the former was the prophet of judgment, the latter was the prophet of grace. The work of Elijah was chiefly a protest against evil, while the work of Elisha was an almost continuous testimony to the readiness of God to relieve the distressed and respond to the call of need wherever that call came from a contrite and believing heart. So you have these two very different, vastly different prophets, one whose ministry symbolized judgment, the other whose ministry symbolized mercy. And what God does by taking up Elijah is saying, no, this is all one continuous ministry from a God who never changes, from a God who is always the same. So what is that meant to teach us, this overlapping ministry? Well, here's, I think, what it teaches us about God, our second point. God is a God of judgment and mercy. Both attributes are equally true of his character. The ministry of the prophets was a unique one because they're calling hard-hearted people to repentance. Turn from your sin, tear down your idols, or, or you will experience poverty, slavery, destruction. Your lives will be ruined. But, again, this message of the prophets, but if you turn to me, if you repent, I will heal you. I will restore you. I will make you new. And some of the prophets emphasized, accentuated, you might say, different aspects of God's character. But both judgment and mercy are true to God's character. God will judge the living and the dead. For all of those who disobey Him, all of those who reject Him, all of those who mock Him and His revelation, all of those who reject His Son, God will judge them severely. In fact, you read the early chapters, or they're not chapters, the early Psalms, and you, you see right away that God is not the least bit intimidated or put off guard by those who plot against Him. In fact, the Psalms tell us that God laughs derisively at those who plot against Him. God will judge those who plot against Him. Judgment is coming when and to those who least expect it, and it will be severe. Now look at, uh, look at verses 19 through 25. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, or from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And then listen to this. Kids, you're going to love this section. He went on from there to Bethel, 
And while he was going on the way, this is Elisha, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the single most important passage in all the scriptures. Um, <laughs> No, not really. But it is one of the most confusing, isn't it? I mean, you read, I read this and I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with this? Uh, well, it's, it, is, it is important. It's not the single most important. But uh, why would God support this curse pronouncement on a crowd of rowdy boys? Well, here's what we have to understand. This is not just about the kids mocking Elisha, right, and calling him bald head. These kids are from Bethel which is the town where Jeroboam, who was the first king of Israel after the, the kingdom was divided, uh, this, is the, this is the town where Jeroboam actually established, instituted the false worship of Baal. So you can say, in a way, this is the beginning of where it all fell apart in terms of idol worship. The kids mocking Elisha symbolized an entire nation's rejection of the true and living God. From the youngest to the oldest, they had forgotten about the God who rescued them, delivered them, and they instead devoted their hearts and their worship to the false gods. And the living God will not tolerate it. God is a God of judgment, but praise God, He is also a God of mercy. Judgment always gives way to mercy to those who repent and believe. God's mercy is a glorious thing. Think of God's grace this way. There are slightly different, different nuance. Grace is when we get good things we don't deserve. And we love grace around here. I love grace. Grace is getting good things we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get the very bad things that we do deserve. See what I'm saying? So grace is getting good things that we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get the very bad things that we do deserve. We have rebelled against God, every one of us. We have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We are, as we sang together under Pastor Chris's leadership, we are prone to wander. Our hearts are drawn away by other things. Mercy is is what God shows us when He withholds from us what we deserve and gives us good things instead. Sometimes people read the great doctrines of the Christian faith, God's sovereign grace, His electing purposes, and they say, that's not fair. That's not fair. It shouldn't be that way. We want a God who's fair. Well, they really don't. Trust me. And neither do I. None of us wants fairness or we'd be punished eternally for our rebellion against God. We don't want fairness. What we want is mercy. Deuteronomy 4 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. Lamentations 3, we read this, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Because of the Lord's judgment and our sin, we should have already been destroyed. The fact that we've lived this long is a miracle. We should have died last night. But it's God's mercy that wakes us up every morning. 
It's God's mercy that keeps us close to him. It's his mercy that canceled our sin debt that stood against him. It's God's mercy that means instead of getting what we deserve, we get all the riches of heaven. You know, in every, in every field or discipline or vocation or field of work, there are those kind of giants who stand out as, um, you know, the people look to for insight and guidance and inspiration. And in art, uh, maybe it's uh, Da Vinci. In architecture, maybe it's Lloyd Wright. You, you think about, uh, you know, we have the NBA Finals going on right now, and you, you, think, you see the number of young players who say, I watched Kobe Bryant and I studied his move and, and, and I had the privilege of working out with him and whatever it is, you know, whatever field you're in, and I don't know, you know, the, the giants in every industry, but whatever field you're in, there are those who have come before us who have really sort of paved the way and you look to for expertise. Well, in the field of biblical counseling, uh, the great, one of the great giants was a man named David Paulison who died uh, about two and a half years ago in 2019. And after Paulison died, it prompted a lot of people uh, you know, all over to, to reflect on the way that he had influenced them through his counseling and teaching and writing. And Well, there was one pastor who reflected on this very beautifully. I, I read this guy's blog. and He had a 13-year-old son. Uh, this pastor did and does. And uh, he said this son went through this very, very rebellious period. He just was acting out. He was very angry all the time, wouldn't listen to his mom or dad. Um, and he would just do terrible things, treat his brothers and sisters horribly. And, uh, and then when he would do that, he would shut down, and he would think, I did that again, I can't possibly be forgiven. And so David Paulison, very kindly and very tenderly, with this pastor's permission, wrote this 13-year-old a letter. And I'm not going to share the whole letter. Let me just share with you the last paragraph. Here's how Paulison wrote to this 13-year-old. He said, don't ever forget. This is a guy, the 13-year-old had shut down because he just keeps doing the same thing over, over and over. He said, don't ever forget. God is merciful to you. Mercy is who he is. Mercy is what he does. Mercy is what you need. God's mercy is not a theory a bunch of words or stories from a long time ago. It is the reality upon which your life depends. Mercy is a reality that anchors you into the life and death of Jesus Christ. He has come for you. He has come for you. Uh, you need help from outside yourself. Ask for help. Now, what a sweet thing for a man who's in his, I don't know how old he was at that time, late 70s, mid-70s, to write a 13-year-old and say, look, no, God is a merciful God. Well, the question we ask is, how do we know that God is a God of mercy? Well, remember what I said about Elisha? He was a man who had everything, left a perfect situation, giving up safety, living a life on the run with no place to lay his head, all in service to God, pointing people to God's mercy. Well, there was another man who had everything, who lived who left a perfect situation, giving up safety in order to live a life on the run with no place to lay his head, all in service to God, pointing people to God's mercy. He too was a prophet, recognized as a prophet who healed the sick, cleansed lepers, raised the dead. He too received the Spirit on the other side of the Jordan. He too ministered to widows when nobody else dare care for them. He too dined with sinners enduring the mockery of the righteous. Only this prophet that Elisha points to, he didn't come to just announce mercy. 
He came to embody mercy and actually to become the basis for God's mercy toward us. Here's our final point this morning. Jesus Christ is divine mercy in person. He is the evidence and the basis of God's pardon of sin among those who believe. What do I mean when I say He's the evidence? Well, think about all the the ways that Jesus responded to sinners. Everybody else is saying, no, she must be stoned. He must be cast out of the city. He must be declared forever unclean. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes them into his presence. He loves them. We see in the the New Testament over and over, Jesus came near to them. And he invites them into a relationship with him. He dined with him. He spent time with them. Jesus shows us the mercy of God. Well, what do I mean when I say Jesus is the basis of God's pardon of sin? Well, God's mercy doesn't mean masking offenses. It doesn't mean overlooking or hinting at or ignoring sin. When I said that God withholds His punishment from us, even though we deserve it, it's not as though He winks at our sin and says, well, okay, as long as you try harder next time. No, our sin must be punished because God is a holy God. There's only one way for God to maintain His justice, that is to say, His righteous judgment, while still extending His mercy. And this way is the provision that's found only in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is in Christ alone that God demonstrates His righteousness and His justice, His judgment and His mercy. The cross work of Jesus Christ. At Calvary, on the cross, Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve so that by believing in Him, we could be forgiven and forever spared the judgment of God that we deserve. God is patient with us as sinners. And He has promised mercy to the broken. But again, on what basis can He actually pour out this mercy? It's on the basis of the cross work of Jesus, His death in our place, the death of the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless one, on behalf of the sinful. So what this means is if you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you will never get the punishment you deserve. doesn't matter what you've done. God has already forgiven you. Not if you prove that you deserve it. Not if you straighten up and fly right. Uh, not if you show that you are promised to never do it again and never do it again. None of that stuff matters in terms of your forgiveness in the sense that your forgiveness is not contingent on your performance or your ability or your obedience. Your forgiveness is not riding on those things. God has declared you forgiven in Christ, so you are forgiven. Right now, you are loved by God. If you're in Christ, you are embraced by God. He's holding nothing against you. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not even judging you. He is taking pleasure in you as a son or daughter. Your sins are no more in His sight. You have been forever pardoned. This Jesus, to whom Elisha points, is the evidence and the basis of God's pardon of your sin and of mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We praise you this morning for your mercy. 
And we thank you that even though we have sinned in so many ways and we continue to sin, even at this moment, I'm sure, you are a merciful and gracious and kind God. And you extend to us complete and total forgiveness on the basis of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, will you keep us in thought and mind and heart near the cross where our sin debt was paid. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.